Genesis 39, please. And 40. And actually, we're going to read all of it because what, you're, uh, what we're about to read is the most important thing that we'll hear this morning. Much more important than what I will say. This is God speaking to us. Uh, <coughs> you'll notice we've jumped over chapter 38. Uh, that's not because it's unimportant. It is, but it doesn't. Uh, it's about Judah. And whilst there would be much that we could say about Judah, uh, we are just going to keep in line with, keep our focus on Joseph. Let's read Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has, put me, he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he's left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, This Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. <clears throat> as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way that your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison 
And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed offence, an offence against the Lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the cupbearer and the baker. He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams and, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Well, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it had budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes, and Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and so I took the grapes and I pressed them into the Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Well, then Joseph said to him, Ah, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days' time, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and to get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. And when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, Well, I also had a dream. And in my dream there were three cake baskets on my head. And the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for the story of Joseph, and we pray now that you would speak to us through this story, beyond the Technicolor dream coat, beyond the songs that we're familiar with from the musical, beyond the films or the cartoons that we've seen, 
speak the truth of your word, these actual historical events, bring them to life, bring them to mind, and bring the meaning of them for us today into our hearts and our heads, we pray, so that we might be changed by them and encouraged through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, perhaps you've heard the saying, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Everybody heard that? Yeah? And then you get sick or you experience pain of some kind or some kind of sorrow. Perhaps it's a broken relationship. Perhaps it's someone disappoints you. Perhaps it's a shattered dream. Perhaps it's temptation and sin. Perhaps it's death. And we then start to ask the question... What happened to God's wonderful plan for my life? Where, where did that go? Where was God? What is he up to? Why is it so hard? And those are all wonderful questions to answer, uh, to ask, because when we ask those types of questions, what is God doing in my life? What we'll find is that he has good plans for his children, but they're not plans for our ease and our comfort. They are plans for us to die to ourselves and rise to new life in him. And sometimes that process is hard. But God loves us more than we know and is not prepared to leave us unchanged in our old selves and in our sin. But sometimes that is hard and we feel abandoned and isolated and on our own. But when we study God's word, what we discover is that the Lord is with us even in those hard times. And his grace is sufficient for us. Now, <clears throat> Joseph probably grew up hearing those kind of words. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Think about who Joseph was. Joseph was the grandson, sorry, the great-grandson of Abraham. Now, Abraham was like the was one of the key figures of the of the Old Testament. He was called by God to be the father of the nation of Israel through which God would bless all of the world. So he had Abraham as his great-grandfather, and then he had Jacob as his dad. Now, Jacob was someone who was chosen before he was born to be the, the heir and inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham. So Joseph was in a very special family, and he was the favored son in this favored family. As Matt pointed out last week, he was protected and pampered from a very young age. He was given a technicolor dream coat as a status of his father's special love for him and, and as, a, as a, uh, a sign of his, kind of his royal special position within the family. And he was a boy who went around dreaming and believing the dreams that he had, that God was going to make everybody in his family bow down to him. So he was a pretty uh, interesting teenager. His father favored him out. His life was considered to be special. He would have heard, God has wonderful plans for you. And yet we find that everything in Joseph's life suddenly goes horribly wrong. His brothers conspire to kill him. Uh, and then they decide, rather than kill him, we're going to make some money quickly. And so they sell him to some Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite traders who, as we read in chapter 39, take him down to Egypt. And when you read those words, down to Egypt, and it's said twice in the opening of the chapter, you're supposed to read them with a bit of an ominous tone because in the minds of the Hebrews and the original readers, Egypt was a, it was a byword for everything that was wrong with the world. The Egyptians and Egypt were, were everything, they, they encapsulated everything that was opposed to the God that they loved and worshipped. 
It was a byword for all of the badness in the world. If it, if it was something that was going to happen that was bad, it was the Egyptians' fault. That was the way they viewed life. And so when we're told that this special favoured son gets taken down into Egypt, it should send chills down your spine. If you, well, it would do if you were a Hebrew. As Joseph journeys from these rural farmlands that were home into the urban metropolis of the time of Egypt, the superpower of the day. So imagine that you were Joseph. Imagine that you go from this privileged status in your house, under your father's care, to be sold now as a lowly piece of property in an Egyptian auction. And you're bought by a man called Potiphar, who takes you back to his house and he makes you his slave. Now, we read in the story that immediately Joseph makes a, uh, a pretty good impression upon his new boss and he enjoys a sort of a meteoric rise up the slave kind of uh, career ladder and he ends up as the head of Potiphar's household, a bit like Carson in uh, Downton Abbey, you know, that sort of the butler who's in charge of everybody else. And from chapter 39, verses 2 through chapter uh, 39, verse 6, we discover that everything is just going well for Joseph. His life is swimmingly well, going swimmingly well. He is enjoying life as the sort of the master in all but name of the household. But then in verse 7, everything changes as disaster strikes without any warning, without any build-up. We just find that his boss's wife hits on him. His boss's wife hits on him. And his reward for doing the right thing and for being obedient both to his master and to his guard is to be falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. Just when you thought his life was on the up, he hits rock bottom because he goes, he's Joseph, wearer of the special coat, loved by Jacob, who dreams everybody's going to bow down to him. Now he's a slave. Then he's a slave in Egypt. Now he finds himself a slave condemned as a criminal in Egypt and he ends up in prison. Okay, so it's like roller coaster, Shh, woo, and we're on the downward speed, hitting the bottom. As Joseph is in prison. Now, let me just park my sermon there for a moment and let's just take a detour a second because if you've ever heard Genesis 39 preached before, you may have heard some sort of message on Joseph's commitment to sexual purity and our need to follow his example. Okay, that's normally what is preached from this chapter. And certainly there is much that could be gleaned from this encounter. You know, as a slave, Joseph's uh, life, uh, and particularly in this situation with Potiphar's wife, would not have been, it would not have been very easy for him to have refused her. It would not have been very easy or safe for him to resist her. After all, he is a slave. He's supposed to do what he is told and he could have excused himself. He could have justified his sinful actions. We hear people do that all the time in our world. They say stuff like, oh, it was just my bit on the side. Or, you know, I was having a midlife crisis. Or I just wanted a bit of me time. Or, you know, I needed to get out and get a life of my own. And we can be, uh, our world is very good at excusing sexual immorality. But Joseph doesn't put his faith to one side when, when faced with the temptations and challenges of living in the real world. He knew the choice. He either obeyed God and disobeyed his master's wife with the consequences, or he obeyed his 
master's wife and disobeyed God with consequences. He knew that his God-centered worldview and the worldview of the world around him, didn't, they weren't compatible. They didn't match up. And so he had to make a choice. And he knew that to sin in this way would be a betrayal of both his master and his God. And so he flees. And most people will tell you, that's what you do when you're faced with sexual temptation. You flee. And that's true. That's a good start. But if all that you get preached at from Genesis 39 is be like Joseph... We miss the point because to flee these kind of temptations is important, but they only deal with the external factors. They never deal with the problem of the heart. You see, the Bible tells us very clearly that our life circumstances do not make us sin. That the people around us who might influence us either to provoke us to do something that we shouldn't be doing or to join them in their wrongdoing, they do not make us sin. According to James chapter 4, hopefully this will come up on the screen, this is what the Bible says causes us to sin. Well, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions, your hearts, and your desires are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel the cause of our sins is not other people or circumstances it's our own sinful hearts that have a wonderful plan for our lives that are often different from God's plan for our lives and so Genesis 39 is not about try harder and be like Joseph it's it points us to the need yes to flee sexual temptation and all kinds of sin but ultimately we need new hearts to deal with sin because it's our hearts that lead us into sin. And in those moments, it's because we want something else more than we want God. But Joseph here, if you notice, he wanted God more than he wanted anything else. Because his desires were different. And we and you and I, we need to have not just... We don't just need to turn over a new leaf related to any kind of sin that we're struggling with. We need hearts and desires that are changed by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So flee from sin, yes, but that's not the main point of this chapter. So let's get back on the bus and finish our detour and get back into what the point of this story is. Is Now, verse 1 of chapter 40, it says this, sometime after this. Now, I love the way that the Bible uses these kind of phrases because sometime after this means 10 years since the end of chapter 37. All right. 10 years, Joseph has been a slave and in prison. 10 years of suffering and hardship at rock bottom. The furthest thing away from the dreams in Genesis 37, Joseph has been 10 years from those things. Some time later. And then we read the story. He's in prison in Egypt. And if you read the repeating words and the language, again, there's this ominous tone as we read uh, 11 times about prison and custody and 16 times about Egypt and Pharaoh. Moses, who's the author of Genesis, is trying to paint a really black picture of where Joseph's at. 
He's in Egypt. He's in prison. He's in prison. He's in custody. He's in Egypt. He's in custody. He's at the mercy of Pharaoh. He's in Egypt. He's in custody. It's all very bad news. Nothing is going well. And then the story moves and we discover that two prisoners join him in the prison, the cupbearer and the baker. Now, these were not lowly servants in uh, Pharaoh's household. They would have been men of prominent positions who had power and influence over Pharaoh because they interacted with him on a daily basis. If you uh, want to see another example of this in the scriptures, if you just go to Nehemiah, you don't have to turn there now, but Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, you find that Nehemiah was the cupbearer uh, for King Artaxerxes, and he enjoyed tremendous uh, personal relationship with the king as his cupbearer. So these were guys who knew the Pharaoh and could influence Pharaoh, which is why Joseph then says to them, please remember me when, I, when, when you get out of here. And these two men have dreams, we're told, on the same night. Now, to Egyptians, dreams were, dreams and their interpretation were big business because they believed, the Egyptians believed that the gods, and they believed in a multitude of gods, they believed that gods communicated with humans through dreams. And so they believed that these dreams had some special meaning to them. But because they are in prison, they can't make the trip down the road to the professional dream interpreter. And so they are downcast and a bit depressed. And so one morning over breakfast, Joseph says, what's the matter with you two guys? And they say, we've got dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And so Joseph says, whoa, just so happens I know a little bit about dreams tell them to me because God can help you answer them he can provide the interpretations so Joseph steps up makes himself God's spokesperson and he gives the interpretations a favorable one to the cupbearer and a not so favorable one to the baker and he just pleads with the cupbearer he says listen when you get out of here please say something to Pharaoh use the influence that you have to get me out of this rat hole Help me escape from this pit. I don't deserve to be here. So please tell him something. Tell him that I don't deserve to be here. Tell him about how everything I do, perhaps it succeeds. Please tell him that Potiphar could speak well of me. Uh, and, and that's true, I think, because if Joseph had been accused of what his, uh, Potiphar's wife had accused him of, then he should have been executed. But the fact that he was thrown in prison probably means that Potiphar still, he knew that there was something iffy up about these charges and accusations. So he was probably saying, please tell Pharaoh, he can, you can work some wonders with Pharaoh, whisper in his ear and get me out of here. And then we read that what Joseph interpreted the dreams to mean actually comes true. In verse 20, just as he decreed, the cupbearer is restored and the baker is executed. And you get to the end of verse 22 of chapter 40 and you think Joe's luck is on the up surely he's going to get out of prison soon. After 10 years of suffering, he's finally going to be free. And then you read verse 23 and you get this kick in the teeth. Yet the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And all his hopes, and all our hopes as the reader are dashed and chapter 40 ends right where it began with Joseph languishing in Egypt with no hope of ever escaping. And we're supposed to ask the question, where is God's wonderful plan for his life? Where was God in all of this? 
from the favour of his family to the pit, to the Ishmaelites, to Potiphar's house, to accusations that, he, that he's falsely charged with, to prison, to, oh, he might get out, but no, here he is. And actually, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 41, two more years pass by. Two more years of prison. Where was God? Well, if you've noticed, I hope you notice as we read, Moses, who was the author of this book, he couldn't have been more intentional. In chapter 39, he tells us four times, the Lord was with Joseph. Four times, verses 2 and 3, and then I think 23, uh, 21 and 23, I think it is. The Lord was with Joseph. And then in chapter 40, we're shown, aren't we, that the Lord is with Joseph. Joseph says, tell me the dreams. They're God's prerogative. He can answer them. And then Joseph answers them. And God works as he spoke through Joseph. So we're told the Lord was with Joseph and we're shown that the Lord was with Joseph. And these two chapters together are a lesson in divine providence. Now, you may have heard us preach from the front here about the sovereignty of God. And what we mean by sovereignty is the sovereignty of God addresses the way in which God has authority to rule and to govern and to control all of his creation. That's what his sovereignty means. He has the authority, because he made it all, to control it all. Now, when we speak about God's providence, we speak about the manner and the way in which he exercises that authority and sovereignty. So we're speaking about providence, the manner in which he exercises his authority. And Baptist theologian Jonathan, uh, John Gill says this. This is how he defines providence. God looks down upon the earth, takes notice and care of all his creatures in it, makes provision for them, and guides and directs them to the answer for the ends for which they were made. That's what providence is, his leading and guiding according to his authority and governance. And in the story of Joseph, God is the main actor. It's not the, actually the story of Joseph. It's the story of God working through Joseph. And we see as we read, nothing happens by chance. All things work according to God's sovereignty and his providence. God is orchestrating all things, not just the pleasurable things, not just the profitable things, not just the preferable things, but everything in a manner that is contributing and working towards his redemptive purposes. So in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 39, we see that God is with Joseph in his prosperity. But then in chapter uh, 39, verses 21 and 23, God is with Joseph in his adversity. Both things. God is with him. In prosperity and adversity. He's not with him in one and then abandon him in the other. He's with him in both. When Joseph set off to visit his brothers at the start of Genesis 37, God had the pit in mind. When Joseph is in the pit, God had Potiphar in mind. When Joseph is with Potiphar, God had prison in mind. When Joseph was in prison in Egypt, God had Pharaoh in mind. And when Joseph rises and is elevated to the side of Pharaoh, which we'll see next week, God has more in mind than just solving famines. And from God's perspective, these things, the pit, Potiphar, prison, Pharaoh, 
They were always part of his sure and certain plan. They weren't, he wasn't thinking them up. I've got to, oh, I've got to fix this. I've got to rectify this. I've got to make this good. No, he was using all of these things, all the, all the details, all the time. He's working to establish his plan and purposes. And he's working through sinful human beings. And he's working in spite of sinful human beings. And through these things that he's doing, pit, prison, Potiphar, Pharaoh, he's setting in mind. Uh, in motion, sorry, setting in motion things that will ultimately lead to you and me sitting here today. But at this stage of the story, God's plan is completely invisible and mysterious to Joseph. Think about it. All that Joseph could see with his eyes were Egyptian monuments and Egyptian hieroglyphics and Egyptian symbols and Egyptian shrines and Egyptian gods. When he looked at his own life, he didn't really have much evidence of God being at work positively. He was in prison in Egypt. He, he never imagined the, this series of improbable events that one thing would lead to another. He didn't know that the closing of the prison door would be the opening of the palace gate. He never heard the words that we read from Moses. The Lord was with Joseph. He never heard those words. Perhaps in his mind, he was sitting there thinking, I'd done the right thing. And look where it got me. Is there really any point in believing in God? Doesn't make a difference. But it made all the difference. Because Moses wants us to be clear. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph, and not just any kind of God, it was the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping. That means promise-making, promise-keeping God. He was with Joseph. He was using his providence to ensure his promises continued. And in all of Joseph's troubles and his suffering and 10 years of slavery and prison. Some of it was self-inflicted. Some of it was the consequence of other people's sins against him. In all of his troubles, God was with him. He never left him. He never changed his relationship with him. His faithfulness was not altered towards him. In the pit, in slavery, in Egypt, in frustrating circumstances that weren't his fault, in circumstances where he hoped that things would change, but they didn't, God was with him. He may be far away from the promises of God. He may be far away from his family. He may be far away from the promised land, far away from his father's house. But he was not and never, ever was beyond the reach of the Lord who was with him. Just because life is hard and isn't turning out the way that we hoped, it does not mean that God is against us. And it does not mean that his plan and his purposes have somehow been thwarted or derailed. He was with Joseph. Imagine if you were uh, the first audience of which Genesis was written to. So Moses is writing to the generation of uh, Israelites who came out of Egypt in the Exodus. So they were walking through the wilderness. They were walking towards the promised land. But they had 400 years of bad memories at the hands of the Egyptians. 
They had been beaten. They had suffered hard labor. They had been slaves. All of those emotions and those scars were still very raw. And so they're wandering out along the wilderness. God has rescued them from Egypt. And perhaps they're wondering, where, what's God doing? Where's he going? What's he taking us? And they read this, God was with Joseph. He was with Joseph in Egypt. He'll be with Joseph as he leads you out of Egypt. Or he'll be with you as he leads you out of Egypt. He was with Joseph in the most difficult circumstances. He'll be with you in the most difficult circumstances. He was with Joseph when he was at rock bottom. He'll be with you when you're at rock bottom. He's not a tribal deity, uh, you know, who is just restricted by geography. He's not uh, limited to a particular place. He's not uh, in a particular temple or in a particular land or in a particular city. No, he's sovereign over all things, over all places, over all people, over all time. Nations are in his hand. History is in his hand. The heart of the king is in his hand. He's the creator. He's the savior. He's the sustainer of his people. Look how he kept Joseph. He will keep you. Imagine you were the first readers in the wilderness reading that. What, what would that do to you? That would give you hope. That would give you confidence. That would give you uh, joy. God is with us. Now think about in your own life now. Let's take it down to us this morning here. When we read this, what's it supposed to do for us? Well, we're supposed to read this and go, the God who is working out his providence in the life of Joseph and in the life of Israel is the same God who's working out his providence in our lives. Now, your life may not be going in a straight line. Okay, we like life. A wonderful plan for my life, and it goes in a straight life. I know where I'm going. And our life may not be going in a straight life. Maybe our career path is not going the way we intended. Maybe our life ambitions are not going the way we intended. Maybe our love relationships are not going in the way we intended. And it's messy. And people might look at us and look down on us and forget us like the cupbearer forgot Joseph. People might harm us and hurt us. They might sin against us. They might falsely accuse us. But God is with us he doesn't forget us he doesn't abandon us he doesn't let us down look with me at the end of i think it's verse uh, chapter 39 oh i wish i'd have written this down verse 21 the lord was with joseph and he showed him steadfast love steadfast love that's what we receive, steadfast love. Sometimes our plans don't go in a straight line, but you know what? God's plans always get to the right destination at the right time in the right way. We should not believe the lie that our circumstances are too small or too unpleasant for God to be involved, that he has, more, he has bigger and more important things to attend to and more worthy people to care for. No, this story reminds us that God is sovereign over the details and he works out everything in our lives for his glory and our good. There are no insignificant circumstances that we face and no insignificant people in God's redemptive plan. No one is here by accident and nothing that happens to us catches our God off guard. That's the message of these two chapters. 
So perhaps you're here this morning and you're waiting for something, hoping for something, praying for something, enduring, suffering on a daily basis. You feel like God has put you in a pit and that he's forgotten you. You feel like you're in a prison in Egypt and it's bad. And it looks at times like, oh, maybe God's going to come through. No. Maybe this time it's going to be, no. The story of Joseph reminds us that even though it doesn't make sense to us right now, it does make sense to God. And his wisdom and his love and his care is infinitely higher and more profound than yours or mine. One uh, book that I've been reading is by a chap called Vodi Balcom. Uh, and he wrote this about Joseph. He says this, Joseph's journey from Potiphar to prison is a reminder that God does not always balance the scales in the here and now. He certainly doesn't always tilt them in our individual favor. He does, however, work all things according to the counsel of his perfect, immutable will. And he uses frowning providences, hard things to accomplish his redeeming work. Therein lies our hope. Thus we can say with Job, though the Lord slay me, I will hope in him. Now I recognize you can hear this truth and, and it doesn't helicopter you out of your troubles. Knowing that God is sovereign and good doesn't necessarily turn our mourning into laughter straight away. But it does assure us that God is our only source of hope and help and comfort. And it tells us that God is using all of the messiness of the reality of our lives and our hearts to point us to our desperate need of Jesus and his all-sufficient grace. I love what John Piper says, and I referenced this a little bit last week at the close of the meeting, but I want to read it again. This is what he says, which I just find so helpful. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, but the part that you see may make no sense to you. But there are three granite foundation stones of truth that can give us confidence. Number one, God's love. In the death of Christ on our behalf, God has totally removed his wrath from us. Now there is not only no condemnation, but now God is only merciful. And even his discipline is all mercy. Number two, God's sovereignty. There is no power in the universe that can stop him from fulfilling his totally good plans for you. But Job writes, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And number three, the third granite foundation stone, God's wisdom. God's infinite wisdom always sees a way to bring the greatest good out of the most painful and complex situations. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Therefore, no matter what you face this year, God will be doing 10,000 things in your life that you cannot see. Trust him. Love him. For they will all be good for you. You see, God was with Joseph in Egypt. But more gloriously, God has sent Jesus to be who? Emmanuel, 
What does that mean? God with us. So in the midst of what might feel like a pit or a prison, Emmanuel is with us. God is working. Let us trust him and love him. Let's pray.